I think we should start with a check-in. Justin, how are you? Not great. You know, like, I feel like everything right now just feels stressful. Like, if if you're in a moment where you have to find reasons to feel hopeful, I feel like the mood isn't great. You know what I mean? How about you? How are you? You know, I I realized when I asked that it was a very unfair question. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think we have those conversations probably every day about like, oh, I know I shouldn't say how are you, but... uh... Yeah, no, I'm very tired. I am coming out of a sort of mental health swamp. You know, it used to be where we were trying to figure out how to unplug, right? Like, they used to be the thing. Like, you just, you know, shut down work, unplug for a bit and turn somewhere else. But what do you, you unplug and turn to what? Yeah, no, I mean, this morning, it's March 30th, and this morning... Again, terrible habit. I look at my phone immediately (laughs) when I wake up. It's just like peeking into the void just to see what's coming up. And on Twitter, it's just so many people that I know, Asians that I follow that are just saying like, do not look at the video. Mm. Like that's all they're posting. And then I know, right, it's going to be another one. And it's just, it's felt endless just over and over again. But I don't know, for some reason, just with the opening of this year, just incessant videos on the timeline of elders, like Asian older people um, getting brutalized by random people. And you don't know how to take it. And people just post it over and over again. And I I get a sense, you know, I understand also on an empathy level what it must have been like, right, to see police shootings of black people and videos of it over and over and over Mm -hmm, again, right? mm -hmm. I'd never seen a similar dynamic play out with Asian elders and seniors. Yeah. It's so strange. Um, and it's really unsettling and upsetting and it just derails your day, you know? You're absolutely right. I remember uh like just over the last couple of years, honestly, waking up and do it and seeing the same thing. You know, uh, a police shooting and black people on my timeline being like, Don't click the link, don't watch the video. Mm. And then honestly, like you go through these waves, right? Like where in part you feel compelled to watch it. And so this is this this is what would happen for me and I'd be I'd be curious to to see where you are too. So there was a time where those videos would pop up, I would see them, people would be like don't click and I'd be like, well, I I'm, I'm going to watch it just to get the full story, right? Then you get enough of those to where you're like there's no way I'm going to watch this. Like it just makes me sick. And then maybe there's a third wave of like I am going to watch this because I'm frustrated. Maybe it's not so much like anger but just you know, confused and frustrated, and that's going to compel you to watch it. But you're navigating like these three different planes, right? And I know I experienced those with police shootings and just brutality in general. I know I would go through that. But I'm curious as to where you stand too, you know, with with those videos. Like there's so many of them out there of elderly Asian people being attacked. Like when you see them, at, at what stage are you at, I guess, at this point? Um have felt in the past that you are supposed to just bear witness and that's your obligation as a bystander. Right. Um, especially when you're so divorced from the moment as being on social media and seeing it and finding out there. But it's also traumatizing, you know, and that's also why I stopped sharing videos. I stopped retweeting videos. You know, this was back, I think, during like Ferguson mm-hmm. and, and that sort of big wave in the mid 2010s. And it's just sort of like... Who are you helping? Right. Right. Um, it feels sensational 
you shouldn't have to look at someone's pain in order to believe them that something happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that kind of, I don't know, I, I, I see the, the impulse to do it because it's proof, right? And I think part of the big argument among Asian Americans um, is that nobody cares about this. And I think that's also a thing, right? That's why Black Lives Matter as a slogan exists, mm-hmm. because it is a very simple declaration that you should care mm-hmm. um, that this stuff matters. But I don't know if making people watch the videos is a way to get them to care. I mean, at the same time, I I get why Emmett Till's casket was an open right. casket during his funeral, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to navigate. Right. And with the way social media is, it it could be a police shooting. It could be an elderly Asian person getting pushed down, punched. When you see those online, even if it's one video with the echo chamber that is social media, it can feel pervasive where it's like you've seen one video, but you feel like you've seen a thousand and it feels like it's happening Mm -hmm. on every street corner. And it could happen to the person that's sitting right next to you. It could happen to your uncle, to your aunt, whatever you're seeing, it just feels louder and that can spiral you too. And it pulls you mm. out of, I, don't, I won't say it, may, you know, for some people, maybe it spurs them to even more logical thinking. But, you know, for most of us, like, it can spiral us in very strange ways. You know, and this goes back to you being like, how are you? And me asking you the same question. I think that's part of it. Like, how do you cobble together your thoughts when everything just feels so loud? I, I don't know. I can speak to the impact, and the impact has been I I worry um, about leaving my house, and my mom has texted me to ask if I'm staying safe. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, she's heard about all this like all the way in Mexico, and she's worried about me, and and I worry about my grandparents, you know, who just got vaccinated and want to go grocery shopping and all of that stuff, and. You know, if anything happened to them, I would raise this earth. Mm-hmm. I would quit my job and just do things I can't say on a podcast. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I would yeah. John Wick everyone. <laughs> I get it. I'm sure that you and I have gone to dinner or something like that. And I've dropped you off at home. And if I'm heading home or if I'm getting on a train, I'm sure it's crossed your mind. Like, get home safe. Uh, I hope there's no police interaction. Not to say that's the first thing you think, but, you know, we've not joked. We've talked about things like this before where, you know, just be careful or something like that. I've never had to think that way for somebody else in, you know, not even as it relates to police, but just in their ability to exist safely. And I find myself wondering how you're doing. You know, like if you go out to a store or something like that. And that's not to say, you know, like these attacks are happening every second everywhere and every Asian person I know is unsafe. But that goes to the same thing with like police shootings. You know, not every black person solely that you know is getting shot or getting chased by police or anything like that. But at the same time, I've never been in a position where I've had to think that way about somebody else in a moment about their general safety. It's it's so it's so damn weird. It's. I don't know how to wrap my head around it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's also what happens, right? If you if you read next door posts before you go to bed, you're probably going to dream about your house getting oh, broken man. into or someone trying to steal your mail right. or, you know, um, if you collect those sorts of items, those sorts of um, news items in your life, 
it can take over your thought processes, right? And, you know, the argument is that bearing witness is really important. Of course, you have to see it and it's news, but I think the way it's been put together, right? Like people make patterns. They want to know that there is something, there's something going on, something logical. Mm -hmm. um, and if you put all of those videos across, you know, from across the U.S., not just the Bay Area, you know, in New York too, and places like Phoenix, it comes into this overarching argument that Asian people are under attack, that there's a crisis. And I, you know, I, I, I start to feel that too. And I know it's not... It's not completely logical. Right. I don't think it, 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 there's no conspiracy. I don't know. Maybe there is a giant psyop, <laughs> right? Um, that is meant to, to just frighten Asians into whatever. Um, but, you know, I don't think all these assailants are talking to each other by any means. I think, I don't think their ties are stronger to each other than the ties that bind, you know, police officers together across the U.S. I think it's different. Right. And I think, I think, that's the thing that 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 worries me is like what ideological goal is being achieved through all of this, right? Because you see people, um, you know, activists and hashtag activists and mm -hmm. air quotes activists sharing videos and they all have different sort of agendas here, right? They all have different ideologies. They all have different ways in which they will use videos and use these news items to argue something. Right. And I think the thing we don't talk about is like, what are those things, right? I think we can always be skeptical of someone like, you know, a cartoon like Sean King mm -hmm. sharing a video because he, you yeah. know, he's a grifter right. and and he takes advantage. Um, but I think beyond that very obvious example, I, I don't think it's easy for most to suss out why we're seeing this. But I think because people may benefit from sharing these videos, that's why we get this like over concentration of them. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, no, I get it. I yeah. get it. And it's hard not to think that for some, it is to stoke division between black and Asian people. You could say when it came to like police shootings, people were sharing those to draw attention to the need for a police reform. But in these other videos, you know, if it's an elderly Asian person getting attacked and it shows a black person, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard not to see that, that, that is part of the agenda for some. That makes things extra complicated. It reminds me of how during, I don't know, just in the past few years, right, we've seen bot armies essentially take mm -hmm. the side of, mm -hmm. of people of color, mm -hmm. right? And they, they surface these videos. That's part of their whole thing. Um, and it sounds ridiculous when I say it. Right. But it's true. Yeah. It's also yeah. true. Right. Like there's there's a level of masquerading that happens on social media that is so hard for individuals to suss right. out. And you want to believe that people are doing things because they believe in them. But time and time again, we have seen that there are essentially people and or automated processes that will take advantage of these moments of real pain and like human suffering yes. for, you know, unseen sort of political ends. And I think being suspicious of that is healthy. And it is part of, unfortunately, a sort of new media literacy that we need to actually think about. Yeah. And it sort of ties back to how I, you know, in the in the sort of corners of Asian America that I look at and monitor and I'm just a part of, I see these videos being shared by right-wing activists too. Right. And, you know, I think understanding how and why a right-wing activist would 
speak out against like racial sort of um, animosity and hate crimes is a really big part of this Mm -hmm. too. And like really thinking about why they would throw their hat in with this. It's frustrating for me personally as a Vietnamese American because there is a lot of conservatism, a lot of right-wing activism and like active um, conservatism in the Vietnamese community, especially in places like Orange County, because, you know, there's a, it's, it's similar to Cubans um, in America, where there's a lot of sort of a hangover from the Vietnam War. And there's a skepticism of, well, not skepticism, but like really hatred of communism and sort of what is perceived to be like a left-wing politics, because they've, you know, they've seen the dark side of what they've been told is left-wing politics. Yeah. And American capitalism is has been their savior, you know, in the past. And I have a lot of empathy for that. Mm-hmm. But it's really I think the thing people don't realize largely is that immigrants, especially refugees, like they quickly become indoctrinated into white supremacy, anti-blackness, capitalism mm-hmm. when they come mm-hmm. here. And it's the sparks are ready to be lit. I could see the pieces like this. All of these videos are like Tinder, you know, building up to to a, a real blaze mm-hmm. in the community. So you have to be kind of tech savvy or in social media, on social media pretty often to pick up on these things. But the friends, the family, me- the older family members of elderly people might not be on Twitter. <laughs> They're probably on Facebook. And you can't really have the conversation that you and I are having, like talking about bots and like conservative accounts and things that are sharing these videos. You can't really explain that to an older generation. And Oh, my gosh, no. And I mean, it's not even Twitter. It's WhatsApp. It's Weibo, right? It's all these other means of talking that uh, that immigrants largely depend on, too. Uh, to stay connected. And misinformation is rampant on those platforms. And it's hard to find like information, period, that is in your native language. Mm. And so you're more susceptible to that because you have less of a choice in terms of like what media you consume. Yeah. That's, you know, do you feel like you have to talk to older family members? Do you feel like you have to talk to older friends? Do your friends feel like they have to talk to older family members? Like, is this a responsibility that you guys, is it something that you even have to think about? Like, how do you see it? That's a really good question. Um, you know, ever since I was a kid, my family has has talked about black people, um, you know, in, in Vietnamese. <laughs> um, and they are anti-black in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. And how do you talk about that? Um, I know that... There are a lot of people who are my peers who have, you know, circulated letters in their family's native languages, you know, who are members of like Asians for Black Lives, for instance, um, about police brutality, about the movement so that they could explain what was happening to relatives who just didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. I've had these sorts of impromptu conversations, but a big thing was the language barrier too, right? Like I don't speak Vietnamese and that has always been a problem in my relationship to my family. Mm. And I mean, I can barely tell them what I want for lunch. How am I going to talk to them about ideology, right? Um, And so it's hard. It's so hard. Um, I I send them what I can, but it's, you know, it's it's got so much less of an impact than if you articulate exactly to them. And I think that's another complication is that I can write all I want for my column, but they're never going to read it. Yeah. So I want to turn this around a little bit, too, because I'm curious just how 
I don't know, how are Asian people talked about um, in your family or just in your community? You know, I I think my family's kind of unique. Like, they were always extremely progressive people, had lived in a lot of places. Like, the biggest thing they talked about was treating people with respect. In the neighborhoods that I lived in, there were business owners nearby, whether it was, like, a small corner store that we would run to if my mom, like, needed bread or we were out of, like, ketchup or something that we could walk to in our neighborhood. Like, they were most likely usually owned by either uh, an Asian family or, you know, we moved across town, a Middle Eastern family, right? So we had interactions with a, from a young age with a very familiar family or, like, group of people. And, you know, some people, like, treat these businesses like shit for some reason, like, almost like, you know, the business owes them for shopping there or something. It's just, like, this weird disrespectful attitude toward toward it. But we never had that, right? But that isn't to say, like, black people in my community who maybe didn't trust, like, Asian business owners or Asian people didn't trust, like, Middle Eastern business owners and or, or Middle Eastern people. But I don't know, man. I didn't realize, like, how racist people could be towards specific groups until I, like, got a little bit older. It's, it's really weird. Outside of, like, black people. Definitely was introduced to racism against black people from an early age because being a black kid and whatnot. Right. Outside of that, like, it took time, you know? And maybe that's a generational thing. Like, I, I have to admit, maybe that's, like, people that are in their 30s. Like, I, you know, I have a limited scope, right? It's just the people that I used to kick it with. But, you know, that's also what's so kind of confounding about seeing all the videos online and seeing the response to them that there's just like this broad stroke narrative that black people of us you know of that demographic are just going out to attack asian people that that's what's so like it just confuses me because it's such a you know it's so far removed from from what i understand growing up you know i guess this is a weird question and you can not answer this too um but I wonder, can we talk about like what we think this is coming from then? Because it seems like it's a mystery to both of us, right? Right. Like, um, yeah. And yet it happens. So, you know, this is the way I see it. From what I've known throughout my life, like a lot of Chinatowns and cities are, you know, usually like adjacent to poor communities or even a lot of Asian owned small mom and pop businesses that aren't in a, you know, designated kind of area that's known as a Chinatown are probably in a community, you know, with a black and brown populace, a lower income populace. And so whenever I see, you know, some of these incidents, like, you know, these people broke into the shop, uh, these people grabbed this purse from this woman outside of the store, you know, something like that. I always think about like crimes of access, you know, like if you're in a low income area, and um, you do do something like this, odds are you're going to go somewhere that's familiar to to you. So you're going to go by the store that you, you know, probably shopped at or passed by multiple times or live close to. You're going to, you know, walk up the street and try to find something to grab out of a car on a street that you know, right? Like, that's my first reaction to a lot of these things is just the proximity. And folded within that, you know, is the pandemic where, you know, resources right now, like, are limited for people that, you know, are in low-income situations. You already didn't have a lot. Now you have even less. You know, the economy's taking a downturn. Like, their jobs are hard to find. Like, you know, even business at stores are slow. So, you know, you have these moments of desperation, too, that happen. 
So you have like desperation. You also have proximity, um, crimes of access, and all of that kind of, kind of comes together. It's things that have been, you know, have a history of, uh, you know, with Chinatown communities and, you know, being close to like black and black or brown populations or something like that. Like there's a history to this, but it's exacerbated now, I feel, you know, a little bit by the pandemic. Then you fold in moments that are caught on video and you kind of lose that historical context to it and it just feels new. But mm. that that's kind of that's kind of the way I look at it. Does that make any sense? You know, it makes some sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, certainly there are robberies that have happened where people have been robbed at ATMs and leaving restaurants and sort of, you know, had purses snatched and things like that. And it makes sense to me because I mean, I'm certainly aware of the history of, for instance, East Asian shop owners going into black neighborhoods um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. opening shops there, like uh, beauty shops, for instance, where they sell wigs and, and you know, beauty products, like that sort of thing, too. And that's a thing. You know, groceries, that's a thing. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense that there would be tension there as well. I mean, certainly I've heard a lot of not like aggression, like not tension in a bad way, but more just people in the community see it and they think, OK, how do we keep the money in black hands? Right. Because, right, right. you know, how yeah. do we pay for products that we use on specifically black hair and, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. enrich our like our community members mm-hmm. um so there's tension there there's an economic tension um and yes a lot more people are desperate because you know they they're out of the job they really are pushed to do things that they don't want to do i mean mm-hmm. many people <laughs> might not be getting their stimulus checks and like even if they did it's not that much money um yeah yeah i think we don't talk enough about how little help there has been for so many people so it makes sense yeah. to me. You know, I, 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 spe- I, you know, I think also like in the Bay Area, too, there's an element of like mental health crisis that, look, I'm not trying to explain away any of these incidents. I, I have to make sure I say that. But, you know, within this conversation, there is, you know, there should be dialogue about like mental health issues, like access to care, you know, what some, you know, what break somebody might be having, why that's going on. Because I feel like, look, if there was like a they were in the financial district and it was a black banker in a suit who was walking home and saw an Asian person was like, Ooh, let me stop and, you know, beat this person up real quick. Then I'll keep going about my business. Then I would think about like, man, what the hell is this? Is this like a, you know, some black cultural thing I don't know about? Like, you know, what is this? But if you look at the incidents, there is something to be said about the mental health aspect of this. And I want to make sure I say that, but just, you know, repeat that, like the random acts of violence, I just there's just no way. I, I I don't know, man. I honestly don't know, and it breaks my heart, honestly. Well, I'm brought back to one of our first sort of interactions, you and me, where we, I think we were driving in San Francisco, and you remarked that diversity is hard to find in this city, but you find it on the street corners, mm-hmm. right? And like mm-hmm. as a black man living in the Bay Area you see a critical mass of black people on the street, Mm -hmm. unhoused people or people who are, you know, suffering from addictions or mental illness and just can't find a bed or can't find a place to be. And it's heartbreaking. Um, But I think that's a really important facet of this too. Just like, who are we including when we talk about the black community, right? Like broadly, Mm -hmm. 
would it be more helpful to be specific? And, you know, this is not to say that people in mental health crises, especially people of color who are undergoing this, like, need to be victimized even further. Right, um, right. But this is to highlight that this could be a a symptom of much deeper sort of robbing of resources that have happened mm. at the highest level here, right? Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. root causes of the the housing crisis and the mental health crisis in the city these aren't the faults of individuals. These are the faults of city leaders who had the power to fund um, hospital beds and mental yep. health hospital beds. And they didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that I think we're finding frustrating or concerning or worrying, the thing that makes us not sleep at night is what are other people talking about? that aren't having this added layer. Most people aren't going to want to slow down to think about exactly what you just said, how it could be emblematic of like issues that are higher up, right? But the easiest way to talk about this or digest it for a lot of people is just to be like, you know, Black people are attacking Asian people. And I, I, I don't know how to bridge the gap, especially because it's not just Black people committing these attacks. White people have been perpetrators too. Yeah. No, no. I mean, for me too, the frustrating thing is one of the reactions that I see all the time is that we should be armed. Mm, Yeah. You know, um, a gun will not solve a mental health crisis. And we we see repeatedly how ill-suited guns are to helping mentally ill people. And and it's that sort of reaction, right, is is common and it also is indicative of like how people see the problem. They see the problem as just like feral people prowling the right. streets essentially yeah. that mm-hmm. need to be put down. Mm-hmm. Um, what disturbs me so much about this is that if people arm up, if more guns are out on the streets, if people, Asian people are on high alert and looking at every black person who is in their spaces, right? In Chinatowns, for instance, with suspicion, it just takes one person to make a really terrible mistake and kill someone that they are afraid of. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We will be right back after the break. Instead of running an advertisement, we wanted to give some space to Good Good Eats, Eats with a Z, a nonprofit serving Asian, Black, and other communities in the Bay Area through food and cultural events. Here's Trin Ban from Good Good Eats. Good Good Eats connects ethnic food districts across Oakland towards a shared, resilient future. We believe any conversation can be had around a table, and we approach this with a multi-generational and multilingual lens, marrying public spaces and digital platforms to cross-pollinate and cross-promote our cultures, like our Asian and Black Unity Solidarity Project, and good, good memories. Follow us on Instagram at good, good eats with a Z to learn more. I do want to sort of address just the, I don't know, like the, the media part of it too, because we are in these very interesting positions where we have a lot to do with, not, not like we don't determine it, but certainly we contribute to the public discourse around all of this. Right. As you especially, because you write about race and equity in the Bay Area. And I was just wondering, how do you handle that? Like, you haven't written that much about this in your column. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were going to, I mean, how would you even start? Yeah. I I never expected this job to be this hard, but it's (laughs) it's hard because of the moment that we're in. So, like, you know, I did the first piece that 
essentially was just like calling people to listen. There are so many issues that I want to tackle in the column that aren't related to the Asian community, just things that I have to kind of like, this has been important to me. This has been important to me. Let me get these first ones out. And the most recent time that I've circled back to conversation about the Asian community was in a recent piece that I wrote about Jack London Square in Oakland, who, I don't care how people try to reason it, wrote some horribly anti-Asian stuff. And the idea that we have, you know, a piece of property, waterfront property that's named after this guy that is a mile from Oakland's Chinatown, where a lot of these conversations are really happening, doesn't make sense to me. That's basically what I said in the piece. And I was like, we can find someone who's better suited to have a property named after them that's from the Bay Area. So, you know, those are the two ways that I've approached it. There's so many other elements that I've thought about, but it would be... And I, and I know this now, it's like, it's unfair to approach a topic if you don't quite have a grip on it, right? Like, we know that's unfair. You're not going to do readers justice. But you also aren't going to do readers justice if you try to tackle that topic while it's also changing. You know, it seems like every single day there's a new element to discuss in all of this. And that's something that, like, worries me, it freaks me out, and it makes me second-guess myself. I'm not going to lie. Like, anytime I start coming up with an idea of how to approach this, I, I, I lose sleep, I freak out, mm. because I want to approach it the right way, and I don't know yet, like, if I can. Like, it's a, it's, it is very much a constant battle. And I'm going to say this, too. So, you know, I, I'm in my own head about it, right? And I know it's tough for me, like, to, to try to figure it out because I, w- I want to do each topic that I talk about right. And I want to have a, a clear point that shows, like, what my values are. But at the same time, like, I do often hear from readers. And the thing that disappoints me the most, and it both disappoints me and makes me want to write, you know, pieces about this, uh, about everything that's happening right now. Then I go back into the cycle of getting freaked <laughs> out about it. But... uh is just hearing from so many Bay Area people who tell me that they're from the Bay Area, who identify themselves as white, who are almost giddy over the idea that more people are talking about it's black people committing these crimes. Mm. And now it's a chance to look at, you know, look how dangerous the black population is. And that's why I don't go to the Tinder. Like just all this kind of crazy stuff. And I got that after that first piece, the Jack London piece. I wish I could read emails about that because my approach to it was, all right, I understand that when it comes to black people, they definitely, definitely like the idea of black people being blamed for everything that's happening right now. So I thought I would switch and show a problematic history of a white person who, you know, a white person in the Bay Area who had, you know, anti-Asian views and how, what kind of mental gymnastics would follow for them to reason that. (laughs) And it is spectacular to see how people reason it. Like white people will go out of their way to not accept the flaws of a white person when it comes to like anti-Asian sentiments. And it's so weird because it just reinforces this idea that people desperately want this one narrative to be the thing. And, you know, being like the only black columnist at the paper and it's a it's complicated as hell. And it like... Sometimes it makes me sick to my stomach. Like, it's just, it's a lot to kind of sift through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's 
probably really disturbing to get those letters. I mean, I get similar sometimes too when I step mm-hmm. in it, but how would God. so how do you wrestle with this too? Cuz I mean, <laughs> your writing touches on so many aspects of everyday life of different cultures and I'm sure you get pressure from people to share your perspective, to share your trauma. I'm really curious, how are you navigating all this stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't really written much about this just because it's so hard. And also it's feels it's, it feels like it's outside of my lane in a, in a sense, um, mm. because there are so many pieces to this that we don't know, right? Just collectively. Um, I want to leave that to the investigative journalists. But I mean, certainly the impact of this has been really curious, especially when juxtaposed with sort of this overarching pattern of me being criticized by readers for covering, you know, Asian restaurants because they Mm. see me as biased towards them and they want me to write about restaurants they actually want to go to. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um, And so like, you know, to me, that feels like anti-Asian sentiment that I have to deal with. Um, And so I'm navigating it in a a smaller sense, right? Um, But it's interesting to me that the violence that we pick up on is these really big incidents of physical violence. And, you know, as as you and I are sort of attesting to, there's all sorts of ways in which which hate kind of creeps in, right? Into Mm -hmm. your pores and under your skin every day. And one of the things that I was afraid of already, um, you know, with the onset of the Trump administration in 2016 was that there would be a retreating of rights for naturalized citizens in this country, which there has been. Um, Members of my family could very easily be deported for committing a crime, even though they are naturalized citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that is state violence, right? Um, State violence brought us here too. And I just, you know, that has affected so many more lives and actually killed so many more people. And it frustrates me. I'm saying all this because that is what informs my values. When That's what informs my approach when I talk about diversity, when I talk about people of color in this country, right, in my work and why I care. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not because I just want representation. I want to be seen in the media. It's not that um, the point to my existence right, is addressing all of these things, really exposing them to the light so people can understand where we come from and why we're here and how we get out of this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get it. I get it 100%. So in journalism, you know, we do write for a readership and it's very evident. It's easy for us to track what kinds of stories, you know, get a lot of views the context of stories that, you know, might drive a lot of traffic and get a lot of people talking. In, in media overall, throughout the country, do you think reader reaction to stuff or what people are clamoring for is seeping into the way that this moment is being talked about? I don't know. I'm Often, I mean, people don't even read the news, which That's is the difficulty, point. right? Yeah. They read headlines. Um, Mm -hmm. And the headlines do a lot, actually, to guide conversation. And I also think, like, it's really important to highlight that news is ideological, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we have a feeling that news is objective, that the media is 
apart from politics, but that's not true. Right. Um, I mean, there are certainly many newspapers and journals that are owned and operated by ideological um, engines. Right. Um, papers like the Epoch Times, for instance, you know, that is very explicitly like pro right wing anti CCP, you know, what they call the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are one of the big drivers behind so much coronavirus misinformation on Facebook. And they are a newspaper. You can pick it up from any kiosk in you know the Bay Area. And it's also one of the few um, Chinese language newspapers out there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of these complications here that I think contribute to this climate. And I think that's just an important thing for media literacy is just realizing, you know, where a writer is coming from and people have their perspectives, right? And how their subjectivity informs their work. I think that's really important here. So if we think of like national coverage, the chaotic nature of of how newspapers are responding to this moment and writing about it reveals something deeper. And that deeper thing is a lack of diversity, specifically a lack of Asian uh, talent in positions of power or in columnist positions or higher up positions that can that have control over, you know, content like this, like who people should talk to, you know, what a perspective should be, what's missing, like the fact that every paper, it seems like in the country has not done a great job of covering this moment just reminds us that, you know, newsrooms aren't doing a good job of like hiring and promoting Asian people. And, you know, I say that and that goes hand in hand, the same thing with black people. Like there's, there's, there aren't people writing about this. Like newsrooms aren't prepared for this. And this moment kind of reveals that. So they're rushing to try to address it and it results in bad, you know, just this problematic content. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating for me because I just, I don't feel heard um, I mean, not specifically, I'm not talking about our newsroom, but like in general, like in in media, right? Um, mm-hmm. I see all of these sort of stories written by star reporters that are investigating mm-hmm. all of this stuff. And I just, I, I, I can sense them missing things, yep. you know, and yep. crafting a narrative that like doesn't speak to nuance, right? Doesn't speak to the fact that many of the victims of violent crime have been working class for instance, right. um, people who may or may not even be American, um, recent immigrants, people with uh, language barriers, right? People who are working in industries that are just not, um, you know, considered respectable. Um, and I think there are, there needs to be more room for different images of Asian people too, and different understandings of the real like multiplicity in what we consider to be the Asian American community, right? I mean, yeah. I I feel very much, I think about this all the time as a Vietnamese American, because I mean, if there is any Asian representation in media, um, it's East Asian, you know? Mm, yeah. And there are so many really important differences between my community and a Japanese or Korean or Chinese community. Um, and that just isn't articulated, right? Like, yeah. And like when you talk about hiring more Asians, right, it's Mm -hmm. oftentimes if they do, it's going to be East Asian. Mm. Like the people who determine the terms of this conversation about anti-Asian violence, right, are going to be rich. Um, Mm -hmm. They're going to be educated. They're going to be working in respectable, you know, air quotes jobs and they're going to be East Asian. 
Mm. And they are probably going to be far away from the people who are actually being victimized. I mean, so we're identifying a problem, right? We're identifying a shortcoming. How do we, I mean, not to say that we have to fix something or address it, but we know it exists. How do we function around it? You talk about not feeling like you're heard, which is indicative of the co- of the coverage. But I, I think that's where I get stopped. It's like, what do we do? What now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, one, make a podcast about it. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> Check that off the list. But I think having more conversations like this is really good. And the point of doing this, I think, is also to help sort of model what a conversation could be like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I wonder just like how many, how many people are having frank talks like this about what's happening and trying to figure out what's happening with people who aren't like them exactly, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know. I'm Maybe that's really hippie of me that to believe that it all starts with a conversation, but you know, um, that's all I have. I think that's a perfect way to end it. Thank you to Erica Carlos for producing and editing this episode. If you're enjoying extra spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple podcasts. If you'd like to read more of my work, check out my newsletter at sfchronicle.com slash bite curious. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.